up, everyone? Um, I have been all right. Let, let me take let me take everybody back real quick because Father Dave Nix and I have been uh, pretty good friends for over a year now, right? Like maybe two years. So the the way we actually came in contact was on Twitter, strangely. But um, Father Dave Nix had somebody who watched his podcast was a Protestant and looking to come into the church and lived in New York. So he put them in touch with me and just to see if I could connect them with a parish to get into RCIA. So that was our first conversation we ever had. And then over the past two years or so, we've just become friends and have been discussing a lot of things behind the scenes. And we finally got the chance to actually bring one of these conversations onto the screen. So how, how are you doing, Father Dave? Good. And thanks. Thanks for helping bring that person into the church. Yeah. So real quick, I want to start this conversation off because something happened to me last Sunday at mass that um, I don't know if I'm completely judging this out of it, like wrong or if I'm overreacting, but everyone has their horror Novus Ordo stories. And up until last week, the most horrible thing I'd ever seen, I had a priest who was a visiting priest at a Novus Ordo parish change the words in the creed to for us men in our salvation to us men and women and our salvation. He mm. made us switch to the old response, the pre-Benedict responses. Mm. He came down from the, from the sanctuary and held hands with the people in the, in the audience. And he changed the, the gospel because the gospels reading that week was John one, which is the gospel that you read at every traditional Latin mass at the end of the traditional Latin That's mass. Right. And That's he right. said he didn't like that gospel. So he changed that gospel. So that was the worst story I'd ever been in up until that point, aside from seeing hosts hit the ground from uh, communion in the hand. Um, then this past Sunday, I was at mass and I was there for a friend's daughter's communion. And my friend's father-in-law had a heart attack during the homily. Okay. So and I was always under the impression that the homily was a break in the, in, in the mass of the faithful and the mass of the catechumens, that there's a break in the middle and I guess you would say the Eucharist of the liturgy of uh, the word or the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist and the Novus Ordo mass. But I was always under the impression that that is actually a break in the mass. And that if something happened, as long as they didn't start consecrating the Eucharist at that point, that in an emergency like that, that the priest could stop. And as long as he picked up the mass and in the case of an emergency, as long as he continued it and finished the mass after it would be okay. So this guy has a heart attack. It's obvious to the entire parish, the entire parish sees it. The family is hysterically crying. They carry the man's able to walk to the door. And once he gets to the door, he collapses. So they, they carry him outside. The whole family is hysterical. There are three priests at this parish and not one of them went over to give this man extreme unction. Not one of them even asked, Hey, let's all do some intercessory prayers. Like pause the homily and ask for intercessory prayers. We have an emergency going on right now. Am I overreacting and getting upset to something like that? Or is that actually, did he do the right thing in that scenario? You mean insofar as he didn't anoint him in the back? He didn't stop the homily. He just kept on like nothing was happening. Nobody went and got the yeah. other priests that were in the back to go and give any anointing, anything. It was just, he just yeah. kept on with the mass as if nothing had happened. Yeah, that's a good question. So first of all, in, at least in tradition, the actual sacrifice, it be, the actual sacrifice begins at the offertory. So when you see the priest, and we're obviously talking about the traditional land mass. When the priest takes off the veil, that begins the offertory. There's three actual parts of the sacrifice. And that's where, like, if someone, if a priest dies right after he takes off the veil, you do have to haul in another priest and have him finish the mass at that point. Um, now, you're absolutely correct that the homily is considered a pause. It's a hiatus almost 
uh, of the mass, right, between the mass of the catechumens and mass of the and mass of the faithful. This is why, in tradition, the priest takes off his maniple when he's preaching at that point. Mm. Um, it's probably debatable if the priest actually preaching should or could or would have gone to the back to pause a sermon. But I think you you named the the easiest solution right there would have been. Uh, to have one of the other priests who's in the back, who's in the sacristy or whatever, probably some lay person should have gone and told one of the priests there, hey, we have a man down in uh, the vestibule or in the narthex. Did did you or any, not to put it on your shoulders, Andy, but did any, did any lay this people? This is your go, fault, Anthony. No, so I, I grabbed an usher and I told the yeah. usher to go and do it. And the usher said, no, we're not allowed back there. Well, you can be sure if if the usher wanted to go back there for a quote unquote better reason, he would have gone back, you know. Mm -hmm. So the usher should have gone. You did the right thing. (laughs) You told the usher. The usher should have gone back and and got a priest. Now, one of the things you and I were texting about in this situation, by the way, I remembered him at the Memento for the Dead um, at several of my masses behind me, my hermitage here, um, since you told me. one of the things you and I were texting about is, you know, I'm of a firm belief that the two most underrated sacraments, especially for salvation, is baptism and confession. So even if a priest didn't have oils on him, because, you know, a lot of times priests may not have anointing oil just on his person in the sacristy. Even if one of the priests who wasn't offering mass had been tagged by the usher and he had gone back to the narthex for this man, either in cardiac arrest or approaching cardiac arrest, um, he could still hear his confession. And, and that's where I really believe um, it's really important to bring a priest on scene to say, hey, when was your last confession? And just have everyone just take off. If someone is, is you know, because I probably most people out there know a heart attack, that's not the same as cardiac arrest. Sometimes it leads to cardiac arrest, but you can have a fine conversation having a myocardial infarction. Myocardial infarction and that's that's a perfect time to make a confession if you're about to fibrillate, you know. And so it would have been a good idea to get the priest. He could hear his confession. You have everyone just bail from the narthex for the sake of confidentiality. And and that would have been probably the most important sacrament for his salvation, but hopefully he had some regular use of the sacraments. Anthony, you're muted. Can you hear me? Okay. I got you. Can you give extreme unction if a person has not received the sacrament of confession? Yes, you can. Uh, fascinating fact about it. If um, extreme unction relieves not only venial sin, but even mortal sin, provided this person has some regular use of the sacraments. Now, if somebody happened to leave the church 50 years ago, hasn't been to you know confession in 40 years, hasn't been to mass in 20 years, the priest doesn't know that he should still anoint the Catholic who's down. But most likely it's not going to do anything right now. That doesn't mean the person is necessarily going to hell. God can still give the gift of perfect contrition at the last moment, but it has to come right from God. But if someone hasn't been to confession in 20 years and it's at least partially their fault, extreme unction isn't really going to do much. But if someone who is regularly going to the sacraments happens to be in mortal sin and gets in a crash and is in the trauma center and then is in the ICU and then the priest comes and anoints him, Provided he has some faith and has had some use of the sacraments, extreme unction will relieve even mortal sin at that point, um, should he live or die. See, I to me, it what struck me was it just now I don't want to accuse the priest of anything. I don't wanna, oh, real quick, don't Anthony, to you. answer your question, though. Yeah. Any any Catholic that is in danger of death, we can we can anoint. We don't have to figure out the level of this person's faith or morals yeah. to anoint them. 
But I just mean from God's point of view, it's only going to work if this person has been practicing a, a bit. Yeah, so, I, I, it just seemed like a total loss of supernatural faith in the sacraments on part of. Yeah, that's just how it came off to me. Um, and this is a parish that on a typical Sunday, you'll hear applause after the homily and never is it corrected. You'll see people receive communion in one hand and go like this. Like it, mm-hmm. it's it's. There's such carelessness in the liturgy at this parish that I almost it it feels borderline sinful to go. Like I, I never ever feel like I fulfilled my Sunday obligation. I'm not now. I'm not now. This is going to lead into um, a conversation that because Father Father Dave and I have have a very similar view in that things are so confusing right now that even if somebody hey, is Anthony, can I say one thing real quick? Yeah, of course. You know, if you, if that's a parish that that is changing the gospel. Then there's a I mean, I can't read this priest's heart, but if that's a priest actually changing this the gospel, is, that's actually a, no, that's a different parish that that happened. Different parish. Okay, okay, that was sorry. a different parish. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. But well, this pro- parish, most, yeah. No, no, no. This parish is just—it's very orthodox in their preaching, but the liturgy is a nightmare. It's I got gotcha, you. Yeah. Problem is, most priests really do think everyone goes to heaven, and if you if you believe that, then there's really no vigilance to you know skip out on the Jets game and race over to the narthex with your oils or hear someone's confession, you know, I really do believe, again, I don't know the the beliefs of the priest there, but even your average, like kind of neocon, Novosordo pro-life priest, if you really put his feet to the fire, is really going to say, you can really be any religion to be saved. Sorry, that's just that's just how it is. Um, they're, they're really going to say everyone is saved regardless of religion. So if that's really your belief, you're really not going to race to a man down because what what is hearing his confession going to do? He's going to be saved either way, they think. Yeah. So why why have any extreme vigilance on the sacraments if your baseline belief is truly everybody's saved? So that's that's the first thing that has to change, not the sacramental side. It's the, it's an it's a it's a crisis of faith before it's a crisis of sacraments. I think the I think the most underrated Catholic teaching is extra extra ecclesium nulla salus that no yeah. salvation outside the church because ever since they stopped. Because it's still it's still a, a, a dogma that there's no salvation outside the church. It's a dogma. Those four words are even in the 1993 Catechism under Pope John Paul II. Actually, do you know that? I didn't. The no. new Catechism <laughs> has those four words. Yep, extra clays and it's, mm-hmm. it's like if you don't believe that, then there is absolutely no reason to evangelize. Like if you don't exactly. believe that there's no salvation outside the church, then there's absolutely no reason to go and evangelize. And I think that. I, I think if you pressed 90% of the clergy, they would say, no, there's salvation outside the church. Not even in those extreme examples that they used to yeah. say where it was like, you know, baptism of blood or yeah. Desire. baptism of desire. Yeah. 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 Things like that. Like, I really That's think right. 90% of the clergy at this point really just thinks like, oh, if you're a good person. Yeah. So you're not well, going to race off to the Northex with your oils or confessional stole if you think homeboy's going to heaven no matter what you do. Well, we're on the subject of uh, of last rites. Is there ever any reason for a priest to deny the apostolic pardon to someone like on their deathbed, like you know, in imminent danger of death? No, there's really not. I mean, you're only supposed to get it once in your life. So, I mean, if you find out you're about to give it to someone for the sixth time, you should probably pump the brakes a little bit on like 
why does this family think this person's repeatedly dying? But, but theologically, there's, there's no, I mean, it's supposed to be given only once on your deathbed. Um, yeah, but I don't know of any major impediment. I mean, I suppose if there was an official canonical interdict against you, um, like you were actually excommunicated validly, then the whole shebang of extreme, oh, the whole shebang of last rites would technically be barred from you if you were like officially under some type of censure interdict, at least ex- excommunication. But that that doesn't really happen to people anymore. Like, unless you're like a traditionalist, then you're in danger of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Rob, did you want to mention why you well, asked I, that? I, I only asked that because um, last year my, my father passed away. And um, I'm sorry. I had a I had a local priest, local retired priest, uh, come in to give him last rites. Um, our our usual priest had just been uh, moved, so we had this retired priest filling in, and he came to give him last rites, and he was just in plain clothes, uh, like t shirt and cargo pants. Um, and he he came in and and gave you know anointed him, and I specifically asked for the the apostolic pardon. And he said he, he didn't have authority to give that, and he left. And I, unfortunately, I couldn't find another priest to come and, and do it before my father passed away. So I was just, yeah. I've always no. wondered if, if there's any reason for that. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, first of all, that your father died. Secondly, that you didn't, um, you weren't able to get the apostolic pardon for him. But yeah, any any priest in good standing has the right to do that. It comes from the apostolic see It's given to any priest in good standing. I would even make the argument because of supply jurisdiction and a global emergency in the church, that would be also be any priest, even one who's suspended, but that's a totally different podcast. I, I think what he really meant is he was too lazy to have it in his pocket. Not that he didn't have the authority to do it. <laughs> yeah, most likely. Which is ironic considering all the pockets he had on his pants. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if I was a Catholic, I maybe would have understood. <laughs> That's why I always wear cargo pants under this habit. Literally, I have cargo pants on under this habit. <laughs> That's great. So, see, I have what a great this is my phone. I have I have the apostolic pardon in Evernote. Everywhere I go, mm. it's with me. Just it's just good to be prepared with that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would think, especially today's technology. So all right. So the other the other idea that Father Dave and I have been discussing is this idea. So Bishop Williamson wrote uh he was on a podcast and he was talking about this dynamic that that Catholics are faced with since since the council essentially of balance the balance between truth and obedience and everybody has to balance somewhere so there are some people who are like 50% truth 50% obedience then you would have like the set of contest is 100% truth and 0% obedience i would say like a an sspx would be like 30% obedience 70% truth the fssp is probably 50 50 I, I mean this is kind of the dynamic people are playing with and you wrote an amazing yeah. blog post on this uh recently that i thought was really interesting yeah you know that if, if you don't mind me reading the quote i if it was amazing, it was just because of this quote from uh, Bishop Williamson. It's what you have in bold there. I might as well. You want to just read what's in bold there, Rob? Okay, right there. And you're, you're, you're muted. In 1969 and the revolution in the church, Catholic authority split from Catholic truth. And ever since, all Catholics are more or less schizophrenic. Because if truth and authority are separated from one another then either I follow authority and forget truth or I forget authority and follow truth or somewhere in between. 
So I'm, I might mix it 10 to 90. I might mix it 20 to 80. I might mix it 30 to 70 or 70 to 30. So all Catholics who want to be Catholic are somewhere between 0 and 100. And there's a great variety and a great confusion in the Catholic Church because of this. And all of that will only be settled, but it will be settled when Almighty God, nobody else can do it, will bring these erring humans, these erring human beings in Rome back to tradition. And when authority and truth reunite, that's when the crisis is over. You want to go first, Father Dave? You want me to you want to take a crack at this? Yeah, just I just want to add that was Bishop Williamson. He said that on the uh, RTF podcast at minute 20 that I linked in there. And I, it just stopped me in my tracks when I heard it because it just explained why there's so many traditionalists of goodwill attacking each other. You know, I, as I said to you before you hit the record button, there has been arguments in church history and people have lacked charity, but they were usually of ill will if they lacked charity. Now we're seeing all these arguments where there's a lack of charity, but at, but everyone actually has goodwill. They really think they're right because of this balance of like 70, 30, 50, 50, 30, 70, you know, uh, uh, authority to obedience. And so it just, it was, it kind of helped explain why there's so many traditionalists of goodwill in all these different tribes attacking each other. It makes no sense to me. Like I, I, I really like, I really think Michael Matt, when he talked about unite the clans, he was, he wasn't so much talking about like unite all the clans of the church. I really think he was specifically talking about the FSSP and the SSPX. I really do. Yeah, because I think I it too. breaks his, I think it breaks his heart that those, that, that, that separation there was heartbreaking for him because yeah. You know, before that split, like I, I know Michael Mack goes to a, a, a fraternity parish, but um, he's still a- diocesan. Dio- he actually goes to that. He oh, goes man. to the parish where we're having uh, our daughter baptized on Sunday. Right. So, but he also was. Uh, I think he said he was confirmed by uh, Archbishop Lefebvre and things like that. And it's like th- there really, there really needs to be. I think we need to give a wide berth for the conclusions that people are coming to right now. I think That's things right. are so confusing right now that it's like, if you That's come right. to a different conclusion than, than the next guy, but you both believe the Catholic faith, but you're having a, a hard time with Pope Francis or whatever your issue is. It's like, aren't you still brothers? What are you arguing about? Why are you angry yeah. at each other? Yeah. If I could read the, the the one line, and I won't just spend your podcast reading, but the one line I was uh, quite proud of writing that explains this fraternal charity. Let me just read that from that that blog, and then I won't read any more from my blog for the, for your guys' podcast. I said I, I'd read the whole thing, as I think it was such an amazing blog post because you you added plenty to it that really just went into it. But then, but maybe we should even after you do that, yeah. we'll get into. You had this great um, analogy about a father leaving money to one child over the other. Do you remember it? Remember oh, this was right. Yes, yeah, so this is right when my mom died. And all right, you, so let, why don't you read the line yeah. and then we'll get into that because okay. I, know, I know you want to right, right, bring right. that up on screen. It's not on screen. It's right towards the bottom. It says, although Bishop, if you look for the words, um, oh, hijacked. Okay, so I wrote, um, although Bishop Williamson was not speaking of fraternal charity in this part of the podcast, I extrapolated from his words, that those who hijacked the council, not only in implementation, but even at the outset in 1962, purposely wanted division in the church. So let me pause there real quick. We have to realize that people like Skillebex, he was sort of seen as the father of the fathers of the council. Skillebex wrote in ambiguity, quote, so his will could be done later. And that's a direct quote from him. It's in Taylor Marshall's infiltration. So we know they wrote in ambiguity. 
why so there'd be confusion but i'm also i'm also convinced they wrote an ambiguity so that the people in the future who are actually sticking with the catholic faith would actually be fighting each other again because some people would say well you know a pastoral council can't err in faith and morals and other people would say but if it contradicts past dogmatic councils then then that's a problem i mean it was it was almost a ticking time bomb to have traditionalists fight traditionalists okay so anyway it continues that means for us the only way to disarm Satan here is to stop fighting and show charity to one another. This is especially important for us in the traditional and conservative movement at this moment in Catholic Church history. And no, we're not talking about, quote, how a council takes a hundred years to take effect, end quote. What church historians traditionally meant by a council takes 100 years to take effect was to affect the clarifications contained in an ecumenical council, not debate the purposeful ambiguities of a council and these ambiguities have led have led to a circular firing squad, not only with liberals, but even among goodwill traditionalists within the Catholic Church. So, like, I could hammer out the position of SSPX above FSSP. I could hammer out the position of FSSP above SSPX. I could even do why set of Acontists are right and SSPX is wrong. I could even do why SSPX is wrong and set of Acontists are totally wrong, or why SSPX is right and set of Acontists are wrong. I could give a better argument probably than most of the people out there listening in their own respective teams out there. But yeah, I could none also, of them actually make perfect sense. None of them make, and that's the thing. I could poke holes in the FSSP view. I could poke holes in the SSPX view. I could poke holes in the set of, in the set of a contest view. I could even poke holes in my own interrenumous view. The fact is we all believe in the full articulated faith and morals of the church as traditionalists. And we're all walking with kind of a, uh, limp. We all have a bit of a, a sliced Achilles heel because nobody has the perfect Rosetta Stone, not even me, to understand that. And the only thing that's really going to solve it is when we have a traditionalist Pope. That's the only thing that's going to solve this. I, I have to address something real quick because 11 <laughs> things like I'm afraid right. of a question. I know it's like, what, so I know like I'm afraid of guaranteed I won't answer this. I don't even understand the question. It doesn't make sense. Do you guys think it's a mortal sin if SSPX do not fulfill their Sunday obligation? They're, by they're saying. Oh, so if you go to the SSPX and if you, oh, okay. If you refuse to go to any other mass. The Joe Boca position where he says, I, you stay home rather than go to a TLM or a Nova Sordo. I think, I think that's problematic. Like I I think, I think if you are an SSPX uh, attendee and you won't go to a diocesan TLM, I, I think that you're refusing communion with your fellow Catholics in that scenario. So I do think that's problematic. I don't know if it's a mortal sin. I mean, a, a mortal sin has to be, three conditions have yeah. to be met that have you know right. it has to be full full into uh uh has to be grave matter full, full consent knowledge. and full knowledge or That's so right. like those three things have to so you can't it's hard to judge if something's a mortal sin but i do think that that's very problematic and I've told Joe Boca that Joe Boca holds that position. He says he won't go to mass at a diocesan Latin mass. I'm like, Joe, it's not like you're actually refusing communion with your fellow Catholics. That's the schismatic attitude you have to watch for. And I don't know, Joe, does he give a reason like he believes that they have invalid orders or what? what was I, don't, his I, don't, I don't know. I I, I think I, I, I'd have to ask him. I would ask him. I'm sure he would answer. Okay. But it, it almost comes. SSP, yeah, go, there's a few people in SSPX communities that they just think that, that diocesan priests doing the old mass have invalid order. That's a little more common among set of a contest. Um, but I, I would have to ask Joe Boca his, his opinion. Yeah. I think he thinks like um, he thinks it's a concession saying that Archbishop Lefebvre was unnecessary or something. I don't know. I, I, I'd have to let him say it in his own words. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. So it, it's not about validity of orders. I know he, I know he goes, so mm-hmm. he, he says that to be bombastic. And at the same time, he goes to Holy Innocence in Manhattan. So don't listen. <laughs> okay. Like Joe is just, <laughs> Joe's a firebrand and he likes to rile mm-hmm. people up, but Joe's not actually, you know, he doesn't actually mean always what he says. You got a great parish there, Holy Innocence. It's, it's my favorite parish on the planet. Like it, it has amazing. confession four times a day and it celebrates both forms of the mass. Even when they celebrate the Novus Ordo, it's always at Orientum. There's a communion rail. So it's always a reverent liturgy, no matter when you attend. Um, and they have confession before and during every mass. It's like, if you hear something in the homily that triggers your conscience, you walk over and go to confession. Mm, nice. Yeah. It's such an amazing thing. And it's beautiful architecturally too. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those older ones. So, yeah. So like what, what we're really getting at is that, look, even even people that uh, that go to a Reverend Novus Ordo there and they're and like they're balancing more true, more obedience than truth. But there's still a person of goodwill that loves the Catholic faith, loves Jesus Christ, believes he's present in the Eucharist. They're still your brother or sister in Christ. Like they're, they're, it's yeah. it's such a weird dynamic when you have these traditionalists even fighting the people that go to the Novus Ordo. It's like if people believe the true teachings of the church, I don't understand where the where the problem is. That's right. Everyone's bushwhacking through a jungle that's completely uncharted, and trying to figure out, you know, okay, I'm reading the Council of Trent, but my bishop says this. These two don't seem to line up. But if I don't line them up, I'm going to be accused of being a Protestant because reading the council on my own without my bishop makes me a Protestant. But I also know some of the things my bishop's saying isn't right. So like, so people just go through this. You know, we we Catholics are hardwired not just to be obedient to God. We, we also, at our deepest core, actually want to be obedient to the Pope and our local ordinary. But then we're reading these old school church fathers and the saints and all this stuff. And we're like, yeah. how do I square the circle on this? And so everyone <laughs> kind of comes to a different squaring of the circle. Um, and there's been a progression of how I've done it. And every step along the way, the last six years, I thought I had the perfect Rosetta Stone for reading. And then all of a sudden I realized, uh, without denying any of the of the magisterium, like, wow, I don't have the perfect Rosetta Stone to understand this church crisis perfectly because like you said, before we started recording, there's a mystery to all this that we, we may not understand. So this is the, the, okay. So what, what Joshua Charles really flipped me out by, by showing, uh, turning me on to Tychonius. Okay. So Tychonius is an African, uh, an African Bishop in the fourth century, same time as Augustus. He was was a Donatist. Yeah, he was a Donatist, but it was before the Donatist heresy was totally dealt with. So he was still right. a bishop in the church, and he he heavily influenced Augustine. But what's strange is Pope Benedict, in a conversation with or or an interview, says to someone, "If you want to understand the church crisis, you should really um, research." What did I hit? I hit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, you should really research Tychonius and look at his understanding of the church crisis. And Tychonius has this, this, um, it, like the hermeneutic that he goes by is seeing the the. Res- what was what was Joshua Charles saying? Restrain, release, um, restrain, release, return. Restrain, release, return is the three R's. Yeah. But he goes through, so he goes through this whole thing saying how like 
there's basically the church is made up of two different parts. So you have, you have a, a bipartite church within the church. So you, they, you ever hear on Anthony Stein show, he talks about the anti-church all the time. You mm-hmm. also heard that, that talk in 1947 with Archbishop uh, Fulton Sheen, where he talks about the anti-church will have all the marks and vision yeah. of the church. Like it will look for all intents and purposes like the church, but it will be the body of the antichrist. And it's like this weird yeah. thing. Like, and it's, it's like, what are you talking about? Where are you going with this? But, Tycone is really his thesis is that in the end times, the great apostasy is not going to be just a great falling away of apostatizing from the faith like we've seen over the past 60 years or so. His thesis was that the true like the the actual church itself is going to apostatize from the truth and that a segment of that church will end up leaving it and they will they will have to leave it but they will still feel like they're part of the true church believe all the teachings of the church still have the sacraments now it kind of lines up if you look in the apocalypse because when you look in revelation 12 where our lady the you know clothed with the sun with the the uh crown of stars she takes the church into the desert right like our lady Mm -hmm. takes the church into the desert but it's like this other church still exists and she's taking this, this church into the desert. And there's a line before that where God actually says where in, in scripture, it says come out of her, my children, because uh, before you partake in her blasphemies, almost like he's talking about this. Look, he's talking about the, the whore of Babylon being drunk on the blood of the martyrs by committing adultery with the nations now, if you look at what's going on in the church right now, you're looking at it and it's like, okay, so you see the hierarchy playing this game with, with the UN and playing with the 2030 agenda. And you're like, and you're kind of yeah. seeing that happen where they're playing, they're committing sins of adultery with the nations with, with a, a human fraternity document. And we're going to build this, this church of human fraternity and it's going to have this one, you know, and trying to, build this weird thing going on and it seems like almost like <laughs> it's I don't, i'm afraid to even say it but it seems like there's going to be a separation where the, ch- the church splits and the people that follow this main church will be the anti-church yeah there's an interesting quote from march bishop vigano and he said um It is no accident what these men affirm with impunity scandalizing moderates is what Catholics also believe, namely that despite all the efforts of the hermeneutic of continuity, which shipwrecked miserably at the first confrontation with the reality of the present crisis, it is undeniable that from Vatican II onwards, a parallel church was built, superimposed over and diametrically opposed to the true church of Christ. So there you have someone who was a mainstream apostolic nuncio to the United States um, does not appear to be a 58 set of a contest using terms like parallel church. Um, now I'm not a 58 set of a contest. I have the, friends the, who the are, eclipse, but right. The eclipse, eclipse of yeah. the church. But 20 so years ago, 20 years ago, the only people using that vocabulary were set of a contest. Right. But then you, you mentioned Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Uh, and he said, the devil will deceive even the elect. He will set up a counter church, which will be the ape of the church because he, the devil, is the ape of God. It will be the mystical body of the Antichrist that will, in all externals, resemble the church as the mystical body of Christ. Now, Josh, Charles, and I, we talked on the phone about this about a year ago, and I think the the hard thing to explain, though, from real solid ecclesiology is 
I mean, we know that Christ can only have one spouse, right? That's that's all through St. Paul. It's all through the book of the apocalypse. There's only one faith, one Lord, one God, one baptism, and one bride of Christ who is the church. So we've had times in history, like the Arian crisis, when we had a bunch of heretical bishops, but we would have said the church was the Athanasian priests, those who actually believe in the Trinity, right? But apparently this is a little bit different of a crisis. Like how, how does someone who believes in a parallel church or a counterfeit church, how do you explain that Christ can only have one spouse? And how do you explain the papacy enduring to the end of time? Because that's another thing, right? Like we have right. to believe that the papacy will endure to the end of time. Now, what we're also like, if you go back and you read the church fathers, the church fathers talk about how, um, well, in, in scripture, it says that the Antichrist will seat himself inside the temple of God and make himself above God and all things of, you know, put himself above all uh, uh, items of worship. I don't have the quote. Yeah, second, but. second Thessalonians 2.8. So now the thing is, a lot of Protestants will take that as there's going to be another temple built. Right. Mm -hmm. And this Antichrist will seat himself in the temple. But that would not be the temple of God because that is not the temple of God anymore. So it's almost right. like I think if the church fathers would have said it was the church because the mm -hmm. church is the temple of God. So if the church fathers would have interpreted that and said that the church would be the temple of God and be the seat of the Antichrist throughout all of church history, we would have been waiting for the, the pope to be the Antichrist. Like it just would have happened. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like like. I don't know, like divine providence that they had to say it was going to be the, the temple was rebuilt. And, and it's a, it's a strange thing. Like during the reign of um, Julian, the apostate, he tried to rebuild the temple and God just kept sending earthquakes and the temple just kept crumbling. So he was wow. never actually able to rebuild the temple or get the temple Amazing. mount built. Um, but it is, the church is the temple of God. And if the antichrist will seat himself in the temple of God, putting himself above God and all things of worship. Like, I don't see how that could be the old temple, especially when you have the, the, what, what the, the mosque and whatever the Islam. Yeah. Is on there. Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. The dome. On, so on the like, dome I, I don't see how it could be anything but the church. That's a reference to, but I'm not a church father. I'm a high school dropout yeah. and don't listen to anything I'm saying. I'm just, Shooting well, ideas you know, here. Taylor talks about this in his new book. The, the church fathers themselves were divided if that was going to be in Jerusalem versus Rome. I believe uh, Taylor takes the view it's going to be Jerusalem. Um, but do you I think he's taking that view to be safe because everybody always accuses him of being like, well, I, like think, I think, think in his book, he actually was only able to find one church father that said Rome, and the, all okay. the others he found said Jerusalem. Nearly unanimous, huh? Yeah. Okay. Nearly unanimous, but then you have our, you have Our Lady of La Salette saying Rome will become the seat of the Antichrist. Now, does that mean the Rome Church of Rome, or does that just mean the Rome, Rome the city? Rome will lose the faith and become the seat of the Antichrist. That's that's an approved apparition. Yeah. Now, does that mean the 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 diocese of Rome? Does that mean the city of Rome? Like the Rome will could mean the, the church faith. as a whole, but it could yeah, just mean the city of Rome, like the. Right, couldn't it? Non 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 church Rome, like just yeah. the city of Rome. Yeah, be I the think so. Because if the Roman if the Roman Catholic Church entirely lost the faith, the promises of Christ would be defunct. So I think I think we have to lean. I t I tend to see that as the clergy of Rome when she says. I mean, if you've been to Rome, it's it's a pretty filthy city right now. 
Yeah. Anyway, it, it could even be the loss of the of whatever was left of the Roman Empire. I mean, mm-hmm. we you know some people hold that the Roman Empire or the Holy Roman Empire or even the Habsburgs were part of the catacomb, right? So potentially, when they're saying that Rome will become the seat of the Antichrist, maybe they mean what's left yeah. of 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 Europe in a sense, what's left of the Roman Empire. But if you look at that through the Tyconius lens, yeah, it's it's showing that Rome will lose the faith. Yeah, Thomas. but Tyconius was a heretic who thought that that was happening in his lifetime with the the Trinitores who turned over the scripture to I, Rome. I agree, right? But now Benedict tells us to see it this way. True. And then Benedict goes and resigns the papacy in a very strange way. I mean, he really did. Listen, this is a brilliant guy who's telling people to go read Tychonius before he resigns the papacy, resigns the papacy in a very vague way, almost like he and then you put that with the vision of Fatima, where it's like, okay, we saw a great light that looked like God. And then we saw in as if in a mirror what we what I got the impression that this was the pope. Right. So it's like this weird thing going on there where it's like. Maybe she got the impression that it was the Pope because we would all get the impression that it was the Pope because Francis said, guys, I am not saying this is real. I'm just, we're having a well, hypothetical it, conversation. Right and now. then uh, you can't forget Our Lady of Akita, who says the devil will infiltrate even into the church such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals, bishops against bishops. The priests who venerate me will be scorned and opposed by their confreres. And we're churches and altars I mean, sacked. We're literally seeing that I'm going and speaking. I'm giving my first talk ever at a canceled priest conference because any, and and we were talking about this earlier in the green room, like a canceled priest is not a priest who did something wrong and got canceled. A canceled, Mm -hmm. that's justice. Like if if a priest commits a crime against somebody, that's justice. A canceled priest is someone who goes and speaks the truth, says something true, and his bishop punishes him for saying something true. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like I'm going and speaking at a conference for canceled priests because they spoke up, said something true, or they did something following too close to tradition and their bishop got mad and their bishop pulled them out of ministry. And we're in times that are just unprecedented. You know, and I love that line from Akita, but uh, but the more cynical side of me looks at that. I'm like, okay, we have all these cardinals speaking heresy. Who is the prophesied super cardinals opposing (laughs) them right now? That's true. (laughs) I mean, we had like the dubia two mysteriously die, God rest their souls. And then we had the threat of the correction following the dubia. And then like Frank Walker at Canon 212 has this countdown of dubia to actually pulling the trigger on the, on the uh, correction. And it's like, it's 1700 days. Now he has an up count ticker every day and it's like 1700 plus days. So who are these heroic Cardinals opposing the heretical Cardinals? I, I just don't see it. And it's like, guys, this like just really think about like how crazy it is that the bishops are saying absolutely nothing about the mayhem right now. Like it really is like you have Bishop Schneider, Vigano, Strickland sometimes and then he backs off. Right? It's like but the mm-hmm. average bishop and the average cardinal is just sitting back and watching this stuff happen. I mean, we, we we talked about what Dolan allowed that God is trans thing to happen and he let them keep that exhibit up. He just told them to take the sign. Sorry, excuse me. Take the sign down. It's like this is such a crazy thing that we're living through right now. It's it's not like anything we we ever could have imagined. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, Satan's always been after the church since the resurrection of Christ. But I think something happened in 2016 onwards of this unveiling of evil that um, maybe you could say 2013, 2013, 2016. I don't know. Something going forward only in the last 10 years, evil's become really unveiled. And the only thing scary to me is that there's still people who seem to be of goodwill who side with the evil. That's that's a scary thing to me. But one nice thing about the church, current church crisis is is a lot of the fence sitters, a lot of the fence riders are joining the good guys team right now in a way that they were hesitant to do, say, 10 or 15 years ago. You know what I mean? I think there is a uh, I mean, there's still some people sitting on the fence, but COVID helped that. I mean, obviously, most traditional parishes have a lot of COVID refugees, people who just realize, wait a minute. The bishops just shut down all the churches for a flu with a 99.92% survival rate, and the traditional Latin mass churches are staying open. I may not understand a lot of these debates, but I know they shouldn't have closed the church for this, you know. So one good thing, and then, I mean, you, you have to have a pretty low level of theology to see what's coming out of the Vatican now is pure heresy. You, have, it's, you, have, you don't really need a Ph.D., from the Angelicum or whatever they have STLs, or you don't really need that to really say the, the the creed. I mean, I'd say to people all the time, pretty much every aspect of the creed has been denied um, at this point, and that's unprecedented. You know, we've had there were popes running around making cardinals out of their favorite sons who had moral lives, but even like the Alexander the Sixth, he's one of my favorite never popes. I love well, Alexander that, the Sixth. He gets such a bad rap, that guy. He gave us the he gave us the Angelus, it turns out. Yeah. Listen, I'm gonna tell <laughs> oh, my last point is just even even the popes with major moral failures never fathomed of touching the faith. Well, let me give you an example of that with Alexander the Sixth. He has a daughter, um uh what's her name? Uh Lucrezia. His daughter Lucrezia is married to she, he marries her off to one of, you know one of the italian families and that sounds like beats, a rap that sounds like a rap star by the way <laughs> lucrezia lucrezia borgia so he right. marries her off she first of all she gets knocked up by some other guy so and then she and she marries him off he, first off anthony you're you're just going by the plot of like the HBO yeah, show. You haven't point. read the actual history. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't know if any of that is true. Uh, it might not be, but this is the point. Even the show understood this. That he he, he gets his daughter. No, no, no. I do know the divorce was the the annulment was was real history. But in the show, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so there she 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 he marries her off to this guy, and they want to get an annulment. Now he's the Pope. You would think the Pope could just give an annulment. The Pope can't give an annulment for for no reason. So he has to prove that the husband. There was no consummation. There's no consummation of the marriage. He has to prove that the the marriage was never consummated. So in the show, they show him bringing, you know, they bring the husband in and they tell him, go ahead, do it with like, you know, a prostitute in front of all the cardinals and the guy because all the cardinals around, he can't perform because he's intimidated with all these men around, you know. But the point was he can't just change the teaching on marriage, even though he's the Pope, he's this evil guy. He's having people whacked and he's, you know, he's doing all these awful things. And even as the Pope, he can't just hand an annulment out without legitimate cause. And he can't change the teaching on marriage. Speaking of, uh, I know this is under the aegis aegis of an HBO show, but just so people know, even in the weirdest times in church history, they wouldn't watch you do that. Of course. 
<laughs> just so people know. If, but it's I interesting. Would... Even, even the new code of canon law, the 1983 code, has a section on ratum non consummatum, ratified, not consummated. So it's, it is part of uh, canon law and marriage, uh, marriage law that in very rare times there, there is a ratum non consummatum. So you don't think they had betting ceremonies? Didn't they have betting ceremonies? Oh, yeah, but there was the church. Oh no, I know, like, I know. Families would want to. Families would want to make sure the marriages were consummated, so there could be no nonsense of nullity allegations later on. No, I think usually they people didn't watch. There was, I think, there's some truth to the old sheets sheet stereotype or sheet myth of they'd come out and show blood on the sheet. There, yeah. There's some history of that, but they didn't. There was no voyeurism in Catholic. Or, or th- they would they would carry them into the same bedchamber together and lock them in there. But yeah, they're they're not watching. Yeah. What are the? Uh, don't the Amish have something like winding sheets or something like you have to they tie you up so you? Uh, we don't have to go down that road. Amish, 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 or Amish? Real Amish or our our version of Amish? Because no, like, we use Amish. To- okay, so before two people are married, they tie them up in like really really tight sheets i know how do we get on this topic i don't know <laughs> anthony <laughs> but, that's how but it's chase no it's, i should get i should dig myself out of this hole by saying it's chase they put two engaged people next to each other all night so they can kind of get to know what it would be like to be next to the person but they're wrapped up in sheets so they stay chased oh that's from Dude, uh, it was like the patriot the patriot they, they yeah, did that the patriot, but that's part of that's yeah. part of some protestant circles that's a good idea. All right. Maybe when my daughters <laughs> start to uh, start to meet boys, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to tie you guys up in potato sacks. <laughs> you guys can talk, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, like um, even, even at 8 p.m. movies, just make that the so, rule. So what was what was the analogy you, you were getting at with the, the family leaving, you know, the father dies and leaves the inheritance to one child over the other? Because I remember when you told me that. I, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but it was something I actually experienced in my family. Um, what was the analogy about? Was it church? Was it the church? We were talking about, yeah, it was something about like um, the, the way things are in the church right now. It was something about like... It, it feels like uh, like the like the father left the inheritance to one child, and the other child got nothing out of it. And uh, this is such a, it was uh, months ago we had this conversation. Yeah, it was months ago. I'm sorry, bitter. Oh man, it was so good yeah. too. We're terrible. You can have me on next time. We'll talk about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, because uh, that actually um, that happened in my family where the inheritance was left to someone else and and my envy of that person is really what started my my um my journey back to to the faith because i like feeling that envy in me and it like it really i saw an ugly side of myself that really i i didn't like it like i was yeah. I, I didn't i wasn't just jealous like jealous is like oh you have something nice and i want it envy is like i hope that person loses everything like i wanted yeah. i wanted them to be punished for for getting a gift from somebody and it wasn't even their fault it was you know it was it was true ugliness that i saw in myself and it really i had to take a real good look at who i was as a person for wishing bad things on somebody because they received the gift and i didn't isn't it amazing what god uses for our conversions it's never uh Never as clear cut as we would have written if we had written in our own stories, you know. Yeah. Oh, but I guess you How guys did you, call. Didn't you guys call this like you, truth and obedience? I guess I, yeah. I do want to share yes. that thing from Doctor. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That that uh, that um, that hierarchy that Doctor Krasnuski put up from his book right there. Um, 
where did you guys want to go with this? I just, you know, he got that from St. Thomas Aquinas. And I was saying off the air before we started, most traditionalists are, whether you're set of a contest, SSPX, FSSP, Interregnumist, even conservative, Novus Ordo, TLM slash NOM, a lot of us have been accused of being disobedient for just trying to do what the church has always done. And this is where we always have to like actually show that there's different levels of obedience. What I find fascinating about this uh, hierarchy from St. Thomas Aquinas is that at the lowest level is human ecclesiastical law. That's conditional obedience based on trust, rightful subordination, preservation of ecclesiastical common good. But anytime that's trumped by natural law, so this would be like the LMNOP stuff, right? That even if someone told you, uh, you can go against natural law, even if that person had a higher rank in the church, well, natural law uh, trumps any ecclesiastical law when we're talking about something of morals that that's really written on the human heart, even before you get to divine revelation of being a Jew or a Catholic, we're talking about natural law. You read Romans one, and this is really the LMNOP stuff. Natural law can't be trumped by any ecclesiastical law because it's already written by God in the human nature. And then higher than that is revealed divine law. And this is where we traditionalists quote unquote, get in trouble. This is why you're speaking at a a canceled priest conference is, you have all these priests with the canceled priests who look at articulated faith and morals for, you know, over 1900 years. And then their bishop tells them to disobey it and then they're caught. But look at look at what's on the screen there. Divine law comes ahead of ecclesiastical law. So it's not that the canceled priests are, are disobedient. It's that they've chosen the right hierarchy of obedience. And then at the very peak of that, of the. Uh, the ladder or the triangle there that Dr. Krasniewski made based on St. Thomas Aquinas is God's eternal law. That's the absolute obedience of all creatures. So when people try to weaponize, um, you know, obedience against us uh, who are traditionalists, we just have to, we don't have to say, we don't have to hem and haw and be like, well, you don't understand, or I'm not really disobedient. We have to say, no, I actually have chosen obedience and I'm, I'm obedient to human ecclesiastical law insofar as, whatever matches up to their bandwidth at that. I'm obedient to natural law as best I can be. And I'm obedient to reveal divine law for everything that's in the Bible and the magisterium. And if someone wants me to cross the wires on those, I lose my soul. And you can really see this really, really well in the movie, a man for all seasons with um, it's the movie of St. Thomas More. Thomas because, More. Yeah. yeah. He's balancing his family, his conscience, his King and his faith. And he has to work this out. You can't just say, well, just obey the king or just obey your local bishop in England. Well, yeah. it's a little more complex than that. He chose to obey the pope. And now, now we're in a, a crisis that's 50 plus years long, longer than we ever expected, where now we can't just even do what St. Thomas More did. Now we actually have to say, is there aspects of eternal law and revealed divine law that appears, appears and maybe, uh, well, I'll just put it this way. We seem to be living in the time of Our Lady La Salette. I'll leave it at that. Well, okay. So even uh, one of the craziest stories, uh, one of the craziest Lefebvre stories is, this is before the the bishop's consecrations or anything. He goes to go to a church and he wants to celebrate the traditional celebrate the traditional mass, and he's told he's not allowed. Mm-hmm. And the following week, a Methodist is allowed to go and celebrate their services at that church. Bingo. And he's. I mean, how does how does a priest who said, I've been celebrating this mass my entire priesthood, I've been going to it my entire life, and I'm being told there's something wrong with this, 
And the Protestants who I've been trying to convert my entire life are now allowed to celebrate their services there. Like, how can you not see that as, I mean, I, I, how do you, how do you, how do you obey that order? And I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I like, I don't see how people make Lefebvre out to be a villain when, without any empathy for his scenario. Like I understand that people are like, well, he, uh, he's not being Martin Luther. That's not the same that's thing. Right. That's not that's not Martin Luther. Martin Luther is rebelling against the teachings of the church. That's a very different thing. He's he's changing doctrine and dogma. It's a very different thing than what Lefebvre was doing. Lefebvre and that's what that's the King Luther. That's the showstopper in that Bishop Williamson quote that I shared at the beginning of this podcast, where he says in 1969, Catholic truth, or no, sorry. In 1969, Catholic authority split from Catholic truth. That's kind of what we all have in our gut instinct as Catholics, but none of us usually have the courage to say something that cut and dried. That Mm -hmm. Catholic authority diverted, split from Catholic truth, because that's a really scary thought. Who's Bishop Williamson to say that? He sounds like the next Martin Luther to say that, right? (laughs) But only I could understand. I understand the accusation, but I mean, even Glenn Beck said this. He said Glenn Beck's not even Catholic, and he said. Yeah, I, I've heard about this third secret of Fatima that talked about a bad mass and a bad council being predicted. It's like, mm-hmm. whoa, if and if that's the case, then then you can't compare people who are holding to constant classic faith and liturgy of the church to Martin Luther. The the only Rosetta Stone of all this is going to be the third secret of Fatima, because if the third secret of Fatima is as like uh, Ferrari and those guys who made the movie on the book, um, The Secret Still Silence, give some pretty decent evidence for if the third secret was a prediction by Our Lady herself for a bad mass and a bad council, then guess where obedience lands you? This is where we have to put obedience to divine revelation ahead of obedience to ecclesiastical. We, we obey ecclesiastical authority insofar as the bandwidth of their competence but never when they tell us to go against Christ and the apostles. See, one, one thing that's crazy about the third secret is also that Benedict is very well-versed in that third secret. And he drops a whole lot of hints about what it could be. And that's why it freaks me out that he told us to look to Tychonius. Yeah, it's but really you remember, why- if you read, if you read father Paul Kramer's book, the three greatest enemies of Sister Lucy of the Cardinalate in the in the 20th century, for especially from like 1970 to 1995, the three greatest enemies of Sister Lucy who manipulated her and tried to hide the third secret was Cardinal um, Chanchi, the one who starts with S, and, and Cardinal Ratzinger. Father really? Father Paul Kramer makes it really clear: Ratzinger made Sister Lucy's life pure hell on her trying to release the third secret, and he has this all documented. Um, in his book, uh, it's one with the flames on the front. I can't remember the name of it, but I never read any it's, of his books. It's so. extremely well sourced. So Ratzinger, as an expert on on Fatima, yeah, I do think he's an expert, but he was also one of the greatest enemies of Fatima in the 20th century. I hate to say it because uh, God rest his soul, but he he was one of the three main cardinal enemies of the true secret of Fatima in the 20th century. Anthony's like, maybe I shouldn't have had Father Dave on this podcast. Ah, <laughs> no, I don't care. No, listen to me. We're, everything we're talking about is is hypothetical, and we're hypo- and we're. I mean, I'm saying crazy things too, right? Like I'm. It's we're we're gaming things out and trying to understand 
what the heck is going on? That's it. Like nobody's yeah. that's what, that's why like I, the hardest position, the hardest time I have with the set a position is how confident they are that they're a hundred percent. Right. Like I find that very, that's the one. I find that like lacking in humility where the conversation we're having right now, you're even saying like, okay, I can poke holes in every single argument. Like, and I'm, I don't know. I don't, you know, yeah. it's a, it's just it's just having an epistemic humility of saying, okay, we all know something's wrong, but we're not sure where we're not sure. And like, I want to no, be. And then I when I wrote that blog post, everyone. Oh, sorry, God. No, when I wrote the blog post, the only person that reached out to me to correct me for it was a set of a contest to be like, yeah, I get your point, but really, you're wrong and we're right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, yeah. it's sort of the confidence that. Yeah, listen, the, you know, the, the I, biggest case against the SETIs is SETIs themselves because of the lack of charity they have. It's like. Yeah. And, like they're, they're, and they're worse online than real life, by the way. Yeah, I would imagine. I've never, I, I don't know any real life SETIs. I didn't know they existed. I thought they were only trolls online. Like they're real people. I didn't know that was real. <laughs> Only kidding. Because I know Lauren's in here and Lauren's a real person. She's <laughs> Only teasing one. No, and I, um, I challenged a SETI friend recently on this. I said, you know, I think the hardest thing for the SETI, I mean, the, if you look at some quotes from Cardinal uh, Bellarmine and apply them to the last five popes, I think it does give some pretty strong evidence to the 58 SETI view. But then you push them and you're like, okay, so you're, you're basically saying... Uh, this can go like, okay, it's gone 50 years. Would it, would you still hold that at a hundred years? Could it still be the case of 200 years of being enterenium? Could, could we have 300 yeah. years of enterenium? And I, I said to a study friend, like, I get your point. You have some really good points, but where's the visibility of the church? And he said, well, yeah. nowhere in the magisterium does it say it actually had the church actually has to be visible. I didn't have the chance to go look at that, but um, I think, I think for me, that's, that's the biggest hole to poke in the setting. Yeah, thing is, and, and how does it get corrected? You know, it's, it, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. The, um, the, 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 the Garabandal prophecy, uh, the Garabandal visionaries mentioned a synod. So mm -hmm. like they're saying, you, you were saying that um, Fatima might say something about a can council and a bad mass. Garabandal talks about a synod, which, okay. I think this next synod, what, what do they push it to next October now? Yes, I think the synod is going to be in 2024. Like, I really think some crazy things are going to come out of that synod. You ever see that quote from Gregory Naz Saint Gregory Nazianzen, saint and church father, said, uh, "All that comes from sin is just rottenness." I'll have to find the quote, <laughs> Doctor. <laughs> Even from place. back then, he said, this in the, he said this in the fourth or fifth century. Yeah, wow. Let me search on my Evernote. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah. Uh, Paul says Garabandal is not of God. I don't know if it is. I have no idea. Why do you say that, Paul? Because I've seen some videos that look awfully convincing. The only thing I have a hard time with is the um, illumination of conscience. Like, it's just not how God's ever worked in salvation history. Like, God has never, never, like, he's always worked with a remnant. He's always worked with his chosen people. He's never revealed himself to all of humanity mm. in one shot. Now, so I don't know how mm. the illumination of conscience would work like that. Like it, it, but maybe who knows? I mean, it's just, it's, it's it would be. You want, you want, I, I really like Garabandal. I really want to believe in it. I, that sounds like I'm about to give all these reasons why I don't. I'm, I'm actually 50, 50. The, the one thing that, that makes me pause on Garabandal is the looks of the girls who are apparently in ecstasy. They more, they look more like they're possessed with the crack, you know, the crane necks and the, um, 
you know, when you're in ecstasy, if you see the pictures and the descriptions of saints in ecstasy, it's, it's extremely peaceful where what gives me pause is the visionaries looking like they're possessed in very violent um, contortions. It's a very small thing. I probably well, shouldn't I hang my hat. I, I have that. to go back and look at those videos. But it's trouble. It's enough to <clears throat> trouble me on Garibandal. Yeah. So Paul's saying that um, the illumination of conscience, conscience is contrary to teaching. See, but there is stuff about like a sign in the sky. So maybe the illumination of conscience, maybe they're explaining it poorly and maybe it's going to be like another miracle of the sun type thing where everyone sees it and they know, you know, but it, to me, like to, for every human being on the planet to know their, their place with God, like how does that not lead to an, an immediate conversion of every person on the planet? Free will. You, you, you could line that up with the seven ages of the church. So that leads to the 20, you know, most, a lot of people think we're in the fifth age of the church. We're going to have the sixth age, which is peace, predicted to last 25 years, and then the Antichrist comes. So, I mean, you could make a pretty good argument. The illumination of conscience is the threshold between our current um, fifth age of the church leading into these 25 years of peace. Yeah, so that would be like the, the, the reign of Mary. Yeah, this is this is also predicted in Fatima, the era, the era of peace. Um, in the end, my immaculate heart will prevail. Could That's be seen right. as you know the the, the reign of a Catholic mon the great Catholic monarch you know from other yeah private another, relation another too. little another weird thing about Garibandal is wasn't there that Joey that Italian out on Long Island who was blind and he was supposed to get his sight back before the miracle of the pines but he he died before this alleged miracle that was supposed to usher in oh really oh, remember the one who, yeah and she's in her like you? mid or late seventies now so it's like. 75, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's like, and she said, she said flat out, if this, and she's supposed to tell us 10 days before it happens. She knows the date already. It's a, it is a weird one. I will say that. Like, I you know, Rob, this you know, is, Rob about the blind guy, the new PO, you know, that whole thing. He just died a few years ago, but he's, he's supposed to get his sight back, according to Garibandal, <laughs> Garibin before he died. So I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think she lives on Long Island, Conchata. Yeah, one yeah, maybe I'll have to go interview her. <laughs> I'll find out where she lives in interview. Her. Oh boy. I doubt that Garabandal is the trad's magic trad's trad traditionalist Megagoria. It really is, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Just lost a few followers uh, saying that. Listen, you no matter what, when you talk about like these visionaries, like you'll always get people get so angry and some people like on both sides of it. It's really a funny thing. Like, listen, Megagoria is a is a weird one for me because like my parents went there when I was a kid, right? And yeah. my my father had like his rosary beads that he had since he was a child with silver links in between turned gold. Um, yeah. They had like all these weird things happen to them. They took a picture and like Jesus's face is in the clouds. They had this mm -hmm. weeping statue that just continuously <laughs> weeps no matter what. Garibaldi tragedy. Great. So it's like I grew up never like really. You know, but then I did a lot of research. Like I, I, I saw E. Michael Jones's uh, work on Medjugorje, and like he really mm -hmm. debunks Medjugorje pretty good. Shows all like the nonsense around it and all the deceit and all that. And you know, there's yeah. that video of the one girl where they go and they put 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 their finger at her, and she she goes like this, and she's supposed to be in ecstasy when he does oh, that. Yep. So right. yeah, there's like a lot of weird things about Medjugorje, but then people do talk about these amazing conversions. I think that's one yeah. of those things where it's like God can write straight with crooked lines. Like even if they're being deceitful, God yeah. can still cause 
cause. No, I know a lot of a lot of great people have had amazing conversions out there. Um, it's it's the theology they're claiming, quote unquote, Mary is saying that I think is is really bad. Um, yeah, it's Pelagianism, you know, that you can get to heaven without grace. I mean, that it's the theology they're claiming Mary is saying that it, that is bad. But I can't deny the tremendous conversions <coughs> that I've seen happen out there. Now, the traditionalists out there were listening, well, well, watch what happens when they find out it was a bunk apparition, then all their faiths are going to crash. No, I don't, I don't, you know, I think I see it more like you do. God can write straight with crooked lines, Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen things like that happen from that. So it's like, look, I mean. And also if you have a thousand people a day in adoration, going to confession, just being, in adoration and going to confession, there's going to be, you know, even if the apparitions were false, which I tend to think they were, if you have a, a 10,000 or 10,000 people a day going to adoration and, and going to confession, there's obviously going to be a lot of grace there. There's something to what Francis said about that, like where he's like, well, Mary's not like a daily post giver. Like she's not like coming to give you a daily message. Like that's not, she's never done that in history. She's never, and, and her messages in Medjugorje are so different from all the other apparitions, especially in the last, you know, 150 years. I mean, look at La Salette, yeah. look at, look at Fatima, look at, look at Akita. You look at those and then Medjugorje comes in and Mary's just like, repent, pray, which it's like, that's yeah, so and like generic. She said, she said, and this is Croatia, which is a big mix of Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Muslim. And she said, the holiest person in the town is a Muslim. Well, how do I know that can't be true? It can't be true. Now, what? here's what can be true, because I know liberals are going to cut out this little segment like they do against me. Here's what can be true. A Muslim could be the kindest person in the town of Medjugorje. It could be the, the nicest person in the town. But the reason why the, a Muslim in a town in Croatia couldn't be the holiest person is because the person who is baptized in the lowest level of sanctifying grace is exponentially holier than even the nicest Muslim, not because this person is better than this or skin color or whatever. And by the way, the Muslims in Croatia all have the same skin color as the Catholics. It's not even a matter of skin color. The reason why is because grace makes us holy. So Mary saying allegedly at Medjugorje, the holiest person in this town is a Muslim, unless 100.0% of the Catholics in that town were in mortal sin then that statement is false. And that would also have to mean there's zero baptized babies who are between baptism and their first mortal sin. So and, that's, and you want to, you, if you want proof of that, just look to the scriptures where Jesus says the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than, than John the Baptist. That's a because little John different. John the Baptist he, he was actually had that. Well, he was at the highest level of grace because the, the doctrine, not just the devotion, the doctrine of the church is he was born without original sin. So he was that the father's explained that a little bit. <laughs> I like where you're going with it. But John the Baptist was at the highest level of grace at the time Mary said um, when he heard when Mary when John the Baptist heard Mary's greeting, it's actually he was, dogmatic that's, that he that's was where he was actually justified. baptized. Basically. He was justified okay. at that very instant. Yeah. So so when Jesus says that, I always I always interpreted that as he was saying that because John is the last of the old covenant prophets. Yeah, and I think now the I new think covenant that, comes. So John dies yeah. before before the gates of heaven are opened. Yeah, I'll have to see what the fathers say because I think it is a I think it is a just just a juxtaposition of Old Testament and New Testament. But we couldn't take it literally as John the Baptist himself because yeah. he sees because when he he, he like, leaps besides in, Joseph, in Elizabeth, yeah, besides world. Joseph and Mary, he's pretty much held as the third holiest saint mm-hmm. ever. How did you um how did you actually what was your original conversion? Because I know you started off as just a regular Novus Ordo 
priest and like what, yeah. what what led you even to seek out the priesthood what, what what was your original conversion well let's see i had one conversion i was you know i, I was raised pretty liberal catholic went to jesuit schools for eight years um then i had like kind of a conversion to i guess we could call it ewtn neocon middle of the road catholicism when i was about 16 and then had another conversion from ewtn catholicism to tradition in my 30s so i don't know if that's going to bore your list, maybe pick one of those two. I don't want to talk the whole time. <laughs> I, what I, I led you from one of those, but I, e two of those are going to lose a bunch from, of listeners. What led you from EWTN to crazy radical <laughs> to the talking to about the Lady La Salette? Yeah, yeah like, exactly. <laughs> what got you on the FBI list? Yeah, well, that was what got me on the FBI list was being arrested in abortion centers, and I saw you put the picture of that up, and I actually have my FBI file in that room that they actually handed me it after one of these arrests. And so for the people who don't know me listening, we do prayerful counseling inside of abortion centers. Um, and we won't leave until every baby and mom is safe. And then, and then we get hauled out of there, but that's, you know, that does tie into the whole topic duties to truth and obedience. Really even the EWTN world doesn't have a problem with me getting arrested in abortion centers, considering it's peaceful. And, and why do they, why does the, and I don't mean to rip on EWTN, I mean the focus slash Augustine Institute slash conservative, that the part of the world that's neither James Martin nor Taylor Marshall. And I hate when people compare those two, by the way, I wrote a blog against that, but I mean, you're, you're run of the mill. You wrote a blog post. against that. And then JD Flynn wrote an actual thing on it. And it well, was two like, years you, after I wrote it. Yeah. yeah you were like, like, I, I knew they were going to do this and it's such a nonsense uh, like comparison. Well, and I didn't mean, I didn't even mean to say those two. I guess I mean like somewhere between the ultra liberals and us traditionalists, there's a group of Catholics cutting their way, doing their best. And they don't have a problem with me getting arrested in abortion centers. Why is that? Because they understand a bad law is no law. A law saying you can kill kids is no law at all. And that's essentially where we take this in tradition on ecclesiastical and liturgical things is if you tell me I have to give communion in the hands and all the church fathers are unanimous against it, and I know the one exception people are thinking of, and I just disproved it in a recent <laughs> podcast, then um, then no, I'm actually not required to do that. Um, <laughs> he not wants you to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, these guys when are honoring me. By when, are you on, when are you going on with him? Have you talked to him? No, we have to we have to connect. I have to but give anyway, you his number. So I, I actually told him I want him to get somebody for me and I told him I was gonna link you two up because I I wanna have you got have you ever seen any of his get to knows? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm it, well, I'm hoping it, to join you guys in Pennsylvania. Oh yeah, so that's you are definitely yeah. So you're coming to PA with us. We're doing a uh, like a little men's week, and Rob's going to be there. Enoch's going to be there. My cousin Eddie, a couple of my brothers are going to be there. We're going to go cool. to Pennsylvania to my uncle's house. He's got seventy acres with quads, and we're going to go to the Padre Padre Pio shrine. But my, we have an oh, apartment, geez. a separate apartment for you, so you could do your monk thing because I know you have you have to do divine office yeah. and things like that. So see, and all these we'll people, all my enemies online say the hermit thing's a total farce. But I said to Anthony, I need mornings for prayer, afternoon. For correspondence, I can join the evening. So I am. I the hermit thing's not a total farce. I do that on the on the go also. I love when people make you out to be like you're some like rad trad when you're like the most gentle, soft spoken person. Like you're just, just like you're, you know, you're so reasonable. I, I need to get off you're Twitter. Like I just I want am, everyone to love each other. I don't know why everybody's fighting. <laughs> I'm mean on Twitter. I'm just. I just need to quit Twitter because I'm meaner on Twitter than anywhere else. So it, it just that's all of us. Everybody. That's all of us. Just I'm a, just gonna quit. It's it. just a terrible medium for communication. But you Twitter. you have a good bourbon cream. Oh yeah, Enoch. 
Yeah, but you're pretty <laughs> funny, Anthony. I mean, you at least you're real good about the uh, self-deprecatory humor. Like when you when you tweeted, you won your wife over when you first met her, saying you're going to be really hot when you get those braces off. <laughs> That's a hundred percent true story. I swear. It's like I saw it and I was like, I don't know Anthony well, but that smacks of a true story. <laughs> I I I promise because I've known my wife since middle school. And we were 13 when we met. And I and she um, listen, she had in her yearbook, it was like, I love Anthony, a body all over her yearbook. So I used the tease. I go, listen, when you get those braces off, then I'll be you're gonna be so hot when you get those braces off. We be little 13-year-old Anthony saying that. That was the worst. Oh, I was so mean to her in middle school. But then when she oh, hit high man. school, then she hit high school and somebody else tried dating her, and I I was like, I'll kill you. Like, that's my girl. You're not dating her. Like, I'll murder you. Stop it. She got her braces off. She's mine. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> so how did I go from really- EW to tradition? Is that the question? Yeah. Yeah. So there was there was the bad and the good. I mean, the bad was dealing with Eucharistic ministers. Um, <laughs> and then realizing that even in a conservative diocese, and they sent me to conservative pastors under conservative bishops, there really was no hermeneutic of continuity. Like, I would I would be defending my liturgical practices as a young priest with Redemptione Sacramentum, written by Cardinal Lorenzi in the year 2004, signed by Pope John Paul II. And when I was going in with not a 1604 document from Trent, but a 2004 document on why I wanted to do the post-Vatican II Mass according to the post-Vatican II rules, and that wasn't even allowed in a conservative diocese, that's when I was like, okay. I really missed the boat on believing there was a hermeneutic of continuity. Yeah. Um, and then when I started, what year was this? Old, what year? What year did you? What did the hermeneutic of continuity myth shatter for you? 2014. 2014. So you made it. Okay. So you made it all the way to Francis. Four years. I made it four four years uh, in in the Novus Ordo world. Yeah. Now yeah, I was a, reading all the church fathers and semin. I mean, it wasn't like. I mean, in seminary, I was reading all the church fathers and I was reading St. Thomas Aquinas. And I, and I was like, I was definitely a conservative in seminary, but my phone was still full of like praise and worship. And I liked the charismatic movement quite a bit. And and actually, my phone still has a bunch of praise and worship. I just never put it in liturgical stuff right now. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so. But it was really, yeah, I would say the hermeneutic cop- continuity in my brain collapsed in 2014. We want to know it's funny like you, because you said you offline have said to me like because you still have a lot of friends from that charismatic community and you said to me like they're some of the most faithful beautiful Catholics you'll ever meet so like the, those yeah. are the people we're talking about like these are people that really truly love God with all their hearts they're not anywhere near tradition but you know they they're faithful Catholics like those are the people that you still need to have goodwill towards you can't be fighting with them you can't just look at them like you're better than them because you go to the traditional latin mass it's like to, it, when when i criti- when i criticize the novus ordo i'm never criticizing a person that goes to it i'm criticizing the liturgy itself like i don't sure. blame anyone for having to yeah. go to the mass that the that the bishops put there for them it's not their fault that's it's, right you know that's what you know, they have access I was- to when I was in one of my last years in seminary, I went to confession to an FSSP priest and I, I confessed just in passing. One of the things in there was making fun of charismatics. Now he did, he probably thought I was already a rad trad or something. He didn't realize I was still half charismatic when I said it, but that was kind of the point that he kind of hammered on in confession. When I, again, I confessed to an FSSP priest in seminary, but he was from France. And I said, I made fun of charismatics. And he said, you know, you have to be careful 
because in the subways of Paris, it's them who are handing out tracks. It's the charismatics who are evangelizing. It's the charismatics handing out miraculous medals. And the traditionalists, we traditionalists are not doing that in the subways of Paris. So that, and that came from a French FSSP priest to me in the confessional. And that stuck with me. Again, he didn't really know I was still half charismatic and half traditional at the point. Um, but but that, that excoriation stuck with me to say, we traditionalists, yeah, we do want to preserve all the old seven sacraments and all the old school doctrine, but that doesn't mean pulling the drawbridges up, right? That that yeah. still means if we really believe this is um, what, what we're called to do, we can't just pigeonhole ourselves into the spiritual works of mercy. We are actually also called to the corporal works of mercy. We can't just say, well, the liberals are taking care of the corporal works of mercy, so I don't have to, right? I'm rereading yeah. the story of St. Francis Xavier, and I'm at the part where St. Ignatius of Loyola and Francis Xavier and all the early Jesuits their mission at that point was not converting Indians, was not pushing against the Protestant reform. Though Both those things were huge for the initial Jesuits, but the very genesis of them was working in the hospitals of Rome. And the hospitals of Rome didn't look like the hospitals of Rome now. I mean, it was just bodily fluids everywhere. It was dark. Yeah. It was cold. There was people dying. This would have been like working in the home for the dying in, in Calcutta or something. And this this is where the early Jesuits took their start, right? So so it's not traditional to actually pull up the drawbridge, only debate theology and ignore all the corporal works of mercy and evangelization. That's actually not traditional at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, Enoch actually has a joke. He goes, you know, the only, the only, uh, the only, uh, what does he say? The only corporal work of mercy that uh, the trads get right is admonishing the sinner. Admonishing the sinner. Cause we love to point the speck out in each other's eyes, man. It's like, it's like, look there, even when we had father Isaac on, it's like pride is look. So you go from, especially when you in, in the spiritual life, like when you get mortal sin out of your life right away, you go from like, sins of the flesh to sins of the, of the, of pride, right? Like Bingo. you start thinking yep. like, Oh, I, I'm, I, you go from, you go from the, the prodigal son to the older brother almost mm -hmm. in that story where you're like, well, you know, I'm this and I'm that. And you have to be very careful of that. And you always have to really remain humble because you can get into heaven. If you don't do crazy penances, you can get into heaven. If you don't do crazy, this crazy, that, but you'll never get in without a humble heart. Like that's actually the book. Humility of heart talks about that that's right. a lot. And that's it's right. It's one of the, it's one of the best books in the world because it really does teach you how prideful you are and you just, you really see your own arrogance. Yeah. And that's, that's been my favorite part of the podcast the whole time, the last 60 seconds. That's brilliant. My, you. um, my little sister is, um, joining the passionist nun. So she just finished her aspirancy and she's going for her postulancy next. She's home for her last three months, the last three months I'm going to spend with her. <clears throat> and she was just telling me a couple of stories about what it's like first of being separated from her family and never being allowed to have communication. So she was there. She did like four months while she was there and she was not, she was only allowed to write my mother a letter twice while she was there. She was not allowed to make one phone call. She was not allowed to, you know, like we could write her. She couldn't write us. And she went through this desolation and this, like this, she basically said to me, like, you, you are an infant in the faith until you experience the desert and you are stripped naked before God and he's all you have. Mm. Like, it was like mm. you, you like she, she was telling me these little humiliations she had to deal with. Like one of them was there was an older nun there who could barely walk and they had an Easter egg hunt and the younger nuns, the eggs were hidden far out 
and the older nuns, they put them really close for the older nuns. And my sister went to help the older nun up because she could barely walk. And Mother Superior thought she was going to look for the eggs that were closer. And she goes, no, you, Missy, you get out there and go look for the far ones. <laughs> and my sister said, like, she said, I didn't even try to explain myself. I, mm. I just said, yes, mother. Okay. Right. Like, so she didn't go, no, no, no. I was just trying to help mother to explain it because she, 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 she took that humiliation to heart. And she was just like, just don't even, don't worry about what, you know, just be obedient to mother superior and go do what she says, where I think anyone's natural instinct would be, to, no, 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 I was trying to help, you know? And then another time she was helping, uh, she had some free time and one of the other sisters were doing dishes and she went to go and help the sister do dishes. A mother superior came over. She goes, don't help her with the dishes, go and do this. And she, she, so my sister, like her love language is like acts of service. So she's like, well, how do I show people that I love them if I can't help them? But it, she's really learning to detach herself from these things and really explaining to me how, the mother superior isn't being mean. She's showing her a spiritual motherhood that doesn't, it's showing detachment and really looking out for my sister's good. Whereas my mother, yeah. my mother's so affectionate and my mother would be like, Oh my God. And like, do and, and there's, there's almost something harmful in that because an earthly mother or an earthly father, you're, you're, only instinct is to protect your child. And if they're in pain, you'll suffer on their behalf, but that isn't always what's best for your child. Like sometimes your child needs to suffer to learn something, right? That's why God will chastise his children when we go and we go in bad routes and things like that. She, My sister told me, I mean, I had a four-hour conversation with her yesterday, and she taught me more than I think I've ever learned from reading a book or anything like that. And mm -hmm. it just it made me really realize how far I am in my spiritual life. Beautiful. She must have a really mortified will if she would be bending down to help someone get an egg and the mother superior said, no, no, not you. you have to go out there. And she just said, okay. I mean, I would have, I would have thrown it at a superior. You know? <laughs> That's a hard one, right? Like, isn't it? It's just like, no, I wouldn't so have thrown times. it, but I would have, I would like you. I, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't have thrown it. I would not. Obviously. No, I know what you're saying. You're kidding, I would have explained myself. I would have been like, no, no, I'm helping. Yeah. Because you, you know? want, the, you want to look like a good person. It's yeah. a weird thing, right? Like you did have yeah. a good intention, but you want to look like a good person because like we care so much what others think. And it's a weird world being in this podcast thing because I'm constantly checking out oh, how many people watched our video, how many people sure. watched our video. But it's like, I don't, I don't, sometimes I feel like if even checking is like, why are you, just let God do his thing. If God yeah. wants this thing to take off, it'll take off. Don't worry about, you know, don't worry about what people are thinking. God will take care of the rest. And if you keep checking it, you're actually going to prevent the spirit of God from helping this thing. Do you, take know, do you know, I try not to look well, whenever I do look at numbers of like likes or listens or views, I'm always reminded or usually reminded of the time in King, King David in the old Testament. Do you know where I'm going with this? King no, David, well, God asked him to go to war and King David goes and has a census to figure out how many, men of military age he actually has, but God asked him not to know any of those. He just wanted him to go. And oh. so he does a census, he goes and counts. And then God punishes him for counting how many people he had. For not having faith. Corner. Yeah, but specifically not having faith was lived out through him oh counting. <laughs> the podcast will only blow up when it takes off its praises, says Enoch. <laughs> <laughs> he's hilarious <laughs> uh, okay so yeah no so, so anyway, David, David gets punished by, by looking at numbers so we shouldn't be looking at numbers yeah 
Yeah, I, I mean that was that was that was almost like um like 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 he didn't trust that like God would just take care of. Don't worry about it. Like, yeah, like trust was the source. Trust was the center of that exactly. Yeah, so it wasn't just for counting. It was because it was an act of lack of trust. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like Abraham saying, "Okay, well, let me let me knock up uh, <laughs> Hagar over here because uh, I'm getting a little impatient waiting for my son over here." You know, right. Oh, and then the second qu- part of going, the second part of going to tradition was just falling in love with the old. Sac- I mean, I only, I only mentioned the negative, but like, you know, my favorite sacrament these days is baptism because there's no worry about um, people falling back into sin like there is with confession. There's no debates on like, you know, con- confirmation. Should a priest do it well? No, really, it should be the priest. You know, mass. There's all these debates on on uh, traditionus custodis and everything. Baptism. I get to do exorcisms. I don't have to worry about recidivism. That's falling back into sin. Uh, and you bring a soul into sanctifying grace to the point that St. Francis of Assisi would genuflect to newly baptized babies. Yeah, so yeah. These days, baptism is my favorite sacrament to do um, because there's no politics and a ton of grace, you know? Yeah. And um, that's just one example of like learning the old right sacraments that I fell in love with the old right side. Like why in the world would you take out exorcisms? But anyway, on the positive side, like it's just so beautiful and powerful to be able to do exorcisms over babies before baptizing them. That when you, when I got into the old sacraments, you just never really want to look back to the, when was your first traditional mass? What was, what was your first experience of it? So I was ordained in 2010 and then I started doing like private ones, maybe, actually about six months after ordination, but it was really slow. Cause I mean, I really wanted to memorize the prayers at the foot of the altar, Psalm 42. I even wanted to memorize kind of more or less the cards. And we only had three semesters at our seminary. So I would maybe do maybe five TLMs a year or something from my first three years of my priesthood. And most of them were private, occasionally, occasionally public, but I, I really wanted to go slow and learning it because I just didn't want to mess it up. But then I, yeah. I haven't done the Novus Ordo in six years now, um, six or seven years. So it's 20, right in the Camino, I walked the Camino in 2011, and, and then I walked the Camino 2015. And after seeing, I, on, the, on the Camino in 2015, I did the Novus Ordo and a little bit of Latin Mass. But then when I saw it was even going on in Europe, not just the United States, then I said, that's it. I'm, I'm only doing the old rite sacraments because something's rotten in Denmark and all this stuff. How far of the Camino did you walk? Like how, how much of the Camino did you walk? Uh, both times. The easiest answer to say would be to say both times from about Leona Storga, which is like right in the middle on the French way, like north. It's so on north of Madrid, right in the middle. Leona and Astorga both times all the way to Santiago. So it was about two weeks. The second time I kind of started in Pamplona, but I had arrived from a mission in India. I was so sick. I ended up kind of like leapfrogging my friend in buses every other day while he walked from Pamplona. So I don't know, probably the easiest answer is to say Leon Astorga both times. How, how many miles is that? Do you know? Uh, boy, see all the numbers are in kilometers in my brain yeah. from those days. So I can't remember. So it took you two weeks though, the first time when you, when yeah. you weren't sick, when you actually walked, it took about two weeks. Well, how, by how the time that? I got to Leon the second time I was healthy. So both times, Leon slash Astorga on the French way to Santiago took two weeks. Yeah. How, have you walked it? 
No, I want to really badly. Um, yeah. do, ha, ha, is that a pilgrimage you 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 recommend to people, or what, what would you? Oh, what, very what, much so. The, yeah. What's the best pilgrimage you would recommend? Because I'm sure you've done the, a bunch now. I know. I know you're actually going on one with 206 tours with Taylor Marshall soon. So um, yeah, leave tomorrow is, morning. Yeah. Yeah. So, what would you say is your favorite pilgrimage that you've done? The Camino. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when I saw everyone, when I saw the videos of people with the masks on and everyone terrified in the hostels and stuff two years ago, I thought I'm never going to walk it again with this. But, you know, they're, they're the globalists are past that scare tactic. They'll move on to something else. Um, so now that I think things are opening up, I'd highly I'd highly encourage you to do the, the Camino. Um, the nice thing is, if you do the French route, you know, the first time I did it, I planned out which hospital hostel to stay in. And the first time I brought 10 students from University of Colorado, the second time I brought 20 students from Colorado State University, first time I planned everything out. But then when you realize, at least on the French route, there's a hostel every golf shot away from the next hostel. You don't have to plan anything out. You can just go as strong as you can in the day. And then when you get tired, you're going to run in to a hostel every half of a kilometer, maybe every kilometer. Really? They're that hostel. often? So you don't. Yeah. So you don't have to plan anything out. You just start your, you know, the hostel lights go on at 6 a.m. You drink your coffee, you walk for an hour or two. Then you have what what we joke is second breakfast, like the hobbits. And then <laughs> you'd stop at like a market at noon, eat a bunch of like salami and bread. Then you want to kind of roll into town at three, throw your bag in a hostel bed, take a shower. And then we'd all get together, me and all the university students, and we'd have like a two or three hour dinner every night. So how many people did you go with? 10 the first time, 20 the second. That is awesome, man. If you could get a crew really like awesome. that together, like that's amazing. That's a, what a yeah. what a beautiful like fraternal experience to just go it and was. just walk together and just spend time talking. That's that's pretty amazing. Uh so oh, I know who that is, Monsignor. <laughs> I made I made a kid joining the ICK refer to me as Monsignor Nix at one point. I think that's who that has to be. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Father Lavel. Oh, it's Father oh, Lovell. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he was with us on the lunch I made. I made that kid call me Monsignor just for lunch. Father, I would love to do that. Like, let's get a group. Let's get a group together. Let's do that. I would love to do that trek. It's great, and it, we'd have to bring a mask kit at this point because, I mean, even the the second time I did it, even trying to occasionally. I mean, I remember once I was in the cathedral in Zaragoza, and the sacristy is the size of your average American. Parent. I mean, enormous sacristy. They had professional or like full-time sacristans there. And I asked if I could just do a just the Novus Ordo that day by myself at this enormous cathedral, Northeast Spain, Zaragoza. It's the first apparition ever. It's where Mary appeared to St. James, by the way. Um, and so I asked the sacristan, can I offer mass? He said, no, you can, can celebrate. I said, can I please offer mass? He said, no, you can, can celebrate. I said, okay, what's, what, what is the mass happening now? He said, it's in Indonesian. I said, I don't speak any Indonesian. And so he said, well, then you can't offer mass. And I mean, you mentioned 10 minutes ago, I'm a nice guy. My anger came out and I don't know where this came from, but I remember the old papal encyclicals where it calls down the wrath of Peter and Paul on someone who would go against the faith. <laughs> and I, in Spanish, I called down the wrath of Peter and Paul on the sacristy for refusing me mass. <laughs> and, then, and then I left. That was, that was the end of my interaction with him. Uh, fall in love me, me. I don't know if you've been listening the whole time. But we, yeah, we, he has been. He's been ripping oh, he has been, We're so excited that we're going to. Oh, wait, I got got a quick story about Father Lovell. He came out to Denver and we went out to uh, a a traditional parish and then we went to lunch. And 
And uh, apparently there was bird poop on my habit. And he just said in his typical level way, he's like, when you come out to the conference, the coalition for canceled priest conference, can you just try to make sure there's no bird poop on your habit? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, actually poop. There was actually bird poop on this. So anyone who says I'm not living poverty, <laughs> I uh, I just watched Father Lavel on Grace Force yesterday. He was on Grace Force. That was a really good interview. If anybody, if you guys haven't seen that one, go check that one out. Um, we're uh, yeah. So uh, uh, I'm giving my first public talk since my brother's uh, wedding when I gave the best man speech, and my sister in law is still mad at me for that one. So. We'll see how this first talk goes. <laughs> now, every podcast Father Level starts with, he says, I'm under a non-penal, non-jurisdictional punishment. If you find out what that means, tell me what it means. I'll be on like Father Level's show on Monday. Maybe put your cassock back on. He says, this is yeah. I, you know what it is? I, it's, this podcast has actually gotten... I, like I'm friends with a bunch of people that I never would have had the opportunity to be friends with. And it has been, that's been my favorite thing about this show. I also have friends on, in California now that like they text me at 8 PM in California and I'm sleeping. Oh, I saw your, I go to bed I saw your tweet on that. What was your complaint about that? It's like, so I get texts in the middle of the night, at 1130, my phone's ringing. So when I wake up, because they wake me up at 11 PM, I wake them right back up at 4 AM. I don't care. And I send them a text right back. <laughs> so I drive them nuts too. It's like, but it's a strange thing with that three hour time delay. So they go about their day and then, you know, at 8 PM, they finally get around to texting me and I'm sleeping over here. So I wake yeah, them you right East up Coast at 4 heart. I was given spiritual, I can only make phone calls late at night. I was given spiritual direction last night to someone on the East coast at 11. And normally I don't, I don't take spiritual directees, but this person really needed just temporary advice. I don't take spiritual directees, but someone needed some advice. 1130 was the only time. I, so I'm given spiritual advice at 1:30 AM out there. It's crazy. Yeah. Not a healthy time to discuss. Yeah. Life of life of a priest, man. <laughs> it's funny. Um, all right, we're at an hour and a half. We usually do keep it there. Um, I will be on with cool. Father Laval on Monday night. Um, he asked me to come on his show, so I'll be Great. on his show Monday night. Then Tuesday, I think Rob and I are gonna do just a uh just the two of us. And uh we're gonna just do some housekeeping and maybe do some lighthearted stuff. And then on Thursday next week, we have Jason from Martyrs Walk coming on. Um and then after that, I think I have Daniel O'Connor lined up. I have Joshua Charles is going to come back on. And then I got to get Father Isaac back on. I really would love to talk to Father Isaac again. So, And uh, we, yeah. should, uh, we should remember that tomorrow and Saturday are Ember Day. So everyone, make sure to pray for your uh, pray, pray for priests, especially Father, uh, Father Nick's here and Father Lovell, too. Yeah, pray for a safe flight for Father Nick's. He's leaving. He's going to Europe, and he's going to meet up with about 40 men. That are on. Well, I don't know if it's just men or maybe men and women. They're going on a uh, pilgrimage in Europe. So I really do. I hope you guys have an amazing time over there. Tell Taylor I said hi when you see him, and um, stay on. And we'll we'll talk in the green room for a minute. Take us out, Rob. Okay. Bad connection.